It's 6 o'clock on the dot, and welcome to WORT's local news for Thursday, October 26th. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. And I'm your host, Sean Bull. In tonight's news, several state assembly bills look to codify Indigenous students' rights and standardize instruction on Indigenous topics. The city of Madison is looking for ways to protect trees as it proceeds with bus rapid transit construction. And in the second half, an expert talks open records law, fall weather means a change in fishing conditions, and the flamingos crash out of the first round of playoffs. This is Stacey Harbaugh and Sean Bull with your local news coming to you from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. Members of Wisconsin's Republican congressional delegation praised the selection of Louisianan Mike Johnson as the next speaker of the House of Representatives, Wisconsin Public Radio reports. The Democrat in the House, representing Milwaukee, however, said the vote signaled Republicans' choice to side with, quote, mega extremism. All the Wisconsin Republicans in the House voted for Johnson, except for Derek Van Orden of La Crosse, who is in Israel on a fact-finding mission. Johnson was the fourth Republican in Congress to seek confirmation as Speaker after Kevin McCarthy was ousted earlier this month. Public universities and colleges in the state could face up to $100,000 in, damage, in damages for violating a person's right to free speech under a Republican bill in the state assembly. The bill is the latest salvo in a long-standing complaint that the universities of Wisconsin, particularly UW-Madison, are hostile to conservative thought and speech. Under the measure, the UW system, or Wisconsin Technical College System, could be fined $500 per day if administrators are found to have violated a person's right to free speech, with additional fines of $50 a day if the violation remains ongoing. Under the bill, violating institutions could also lose access to grants through the state Higher Educational Aids Board and be required to advise prospective students that it had violated free speech rights in the past four years. If passed by the state legislature, Governor Tony Evers is almost certain to veto the bill, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Relatives of a Polk County dairy farming family are seeking to overturn a town ordinance that sets standards for industrial-scale livestock operations. Independent news organization Wisconsin Watch reports that town of Eureka residents Ben and Jenny Binversee have filed notice of claim with the town government, the precursor to a lawsuit. The couple is being represented by the WMC Litigation Center, the legal arm of business group Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce. After a corporation sought to establish a pig CAFO, or confined animal feeding operation, with up to 26,000 swine, several towns in the area enacted rules that require prospective developers to submit plans for controlling disease, air pollution, odor, and other environmental impacts of such operations. The Binversees are related to a family operating a dairy farm that is not a CAFO in nearby Lake Town. The family sued over a similar ordinance before the town rescinded it, saying the regulation exceeded the town's authority. A solar energy project in southwest Wisconsin will give low-income households an opportunity to cash in on the benefits of the project's output, Wisconsin Public Radio reports. The nine-acre Bluff Prairie Community Solar Farm in Vernon County enables consumers to pay a fee for a panel at the farm and receive credits on their energy bill for the power it creates. 
That opportunity may be too costly for some low-income subscribers, so the regional anti-poverty agency CooliCap will use state funds to buy 550 subscriptions that will go to Vernon Electric Cooperative consumers who qualify for the Wisconsin Home Energy Assistance Program. Each panel is expected to generate about $56 per year in annual credits. A scheme to steal up to $11.5 million in federal COVID relief funds has ended in fraud convictions of a Milwaukee man and three others who posed as officials of a fictional country. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that Asia Hassan Bey, also known as Chauncey Hooks of Milwaukee, and three Illinois co-conspirators sought to obtain loans fraudulently from the Federal Economic Injury Disaster Loan and Paycheck Protection Programs by posing as consulate officials from the non-existent country of El Maroc. Over the course of the scheme, which ran from June 2020 through July 2021, the conspirators managed to pocket almost $1 million in federal funds. Locally, uh, quilters and weavers uh, settling in for winter will have a new local outlet to pick up their materials and learn more techniques. The Textile Arts Center of Madison, located on Madison's north side, opens its doors this Sunday afternoon. The nonprofit was founded by two local textile artists who tell the Cap Times that it aims to be a bridge and a home for all fiber and textile art makers in a city with a vibrant fiber arts community. The 100 block of State Street could soon get a new nightclub according to records submitted to the city from the proprietor that seek zoning approval. The nightclub titled Cielo in the application would be located at 118 State Street. It would replace what used to be Diego's Mexican Grill, which closed about eight years ago. The new nightclub, if approved, would have a bar, small plates of food, and plenty of DJs, highlighting house and techno music. The application cites the lack of regular venues for electronic music in the city. The proposed proprietors are also the proprietors of Soto's nightclub, just two blocks down the street from the new proposal. The plan went before the city's powerful Alcohol License Review Committee last week, but the results of that meeting were not immediately apparent. Patrons at a Beloit Noodles and Company restaurant were surprised when a curious deer dropped in for company this week. The buck crashed through a window of the restaurant on Tuesday, sending diners scattering. The Associated Press reports, The deer explored the dining area and kitchen before leaving through an exit door that an employee had opened. After going through a deep clean, the restaurant celebrated the event by offering a two-buck mac and cheese special on Wednesday. And now on to today's top stories. Up to three dozen trees could be removed to construct a bike and pedestrian lane along the north side of Mineral Point Road as a part of the Bus Rapid Transit expansion project. At a public meeting on Tuesday, city officials explained why these trees need to be removed and why over 60 trees were mistakenly marked for removal in September. Reporter Sarah Gabler has the story. Driving along Mineral Point Road between the Beltline and Whitney Way, you pass a quick trip West Town Mall, and several apartment complexes before reaching Garner Park. This 2.5-mile corridor is slated for a redesign as part of the Bus Rapid Transit, or BRT, project. This road seeds a lot of traffic, with over 30,000 vehicles per day. As part of the BRT implementation, the bus lanes will move to the center, 
and the unprotected bike lanes on both sides of the road will be consolidated to a single protected bike and pedestrian pathway along the north side of Mineral Point. Madison transit planners say a number of trees will have to be cut down to expand the sidewalk to create this new pathway. In mid-September, Westside residents began noticing yellow dots painted on trees lining Mineral Point Road, signaling that the tree could be cut down. But prior to this, the city had reassured residents that only a handful of trees would need to be removed to construct the bike path. Alder Bill Tischler was a lead sponsor of the plans to widen the sidewalk and build the bike lane. But after seeing the yellow marked trees, he and his constituents requested a public meeting to raise their concerns. At that public meeting on Tuesday, hosted at Val Phillips Memorial High School, city officials explained their goal of retaining as many mature trees with large canopies as possible. In response to public input, the city re-evaluated how many trees need to be removed. Now, between 28 and 36 trees could be removed, fewer than the 66 which were incorrectly marked. At that meeting, Alder Tischler says, City staff you know, recognized that there was a miscommunication, uh, internal miscommunication. It's a big project. A lot of departments were involved, and not all of them you know, were keeping in, in communication. Michael Schneider, an engineer for the BRT project, weighed in on how trees will be replaced. We are going to plant a new tree, generally as close to the original as possible. That tree will be a species that we've worked with the forestry department on to find a tree that uh, will fit in the corridor, provide some diversity with the tree species, and fit within the available terrace width. City of Madison forester Ian Brown says they will plant the largest trees possible given soil quality and compaction, but the city won't replace any trees lost with the same tree species. In this case, uh, what I could say is because most of the large trees that we would be concerned about are primarily honey locust, we'd probably not be planting something that's honey locust. We would plant something else. We're looking and working on interblock species diversity. In an interview with WORT earlier this month, Brown highlighted that tree species diversity is crucial for mitigating the effects of invasive species and climate change. The north side of Mineral Point Road was chosen for the bike lane for several reasons. Fewer trees would need to be removed, and there are fewer driveways for bikers to cross than on the south side of the road. There are also no above-ground power lines, meaning the roadway can support large trees and their large canopies. After the meeting, Alder Tischler concludes that. We'll be experiencing some short-term loss um, with that, that tree canopy, but I took away from the meeting that the city is making making amends and making efforts to have that road along Mineral Point to have plenty of trees a, uh, you know, in, in the uh, decades to come. It was a win for the trees, for public engagement, and for city transparency. Construction of the bike lane will begin in 2024. For WORT News, I'm Sarah Gabler. The Joint Legislative Council has a special committee on state-tribal relations, which promotes collaboration between Indigenous Wisconsinites and lawmakers. The committee researches issues that affect Wisconsin's Indigenous tribes and then suggests legislation to address those issues. This morning, the Assembly Committee on Education held a public hearing on four of those bills. Joey Iwanape is a Menominee tribal legislator, the director of the tribe's Language and Culture Department, and a sitting member on the Joint Council Special Committee. 
He spoke to WORT news producer Faye Parks earlier this afternoon to share his perspective. It sounds like the Special Committee on State Tribal Relations has been around for a while. When was it established and what are its goals? When I came in, I came in a year and a half ago, actually, when previous legislator, halfway through my term, his term was finishing. And so they nominated me for appointment. So when I came in, things were already rolling and things were moving. So there wasn't a lot of time for me to get some of the backstory. Actually, a couple of these bills were there before I even got there. So there's there's history. I'm still learning about them. With the State Tribal Relations Committee itself, they want tribal nations here in Wisconsin to be heard and to to have a voice. And it's not just about change, right? It's about meaningful change. It's bringing change that is meaningful to the many nations, and not only to the many nations of Wisconsin, but the neighbors we live with, the counties we live in, the surrounding counties like my reservation. It's the counties around us where a lot of our children go to school, where some of our children go to school, where some of our tribal members work. For a lot of the other nations in Wisconsin, it's the counties they live in and that they have to work collaboratively with and So it's about making that relationship stronger. Like an example would be one of the bills that came forward was the Act 31, making some amendments to Act 31, specifically to Native American attire during graduations. Even though Governor Evers, along with the state superintendent, had in fact sent out a letter supporting Native Americans to wear their tribal colors, eagle feathers, and beadwork during graduation ceremonies, there were still high schools and colleges that were not allowing that. And that's how it ended up once again continuing to be pushed and moving back through the state tribal relations. And during all of these meetings and all these investigations and all these interviews, it was continually time and time and time again receiving 100-fold support, bipartisan support, across the board as we were moving this forward. The issues that we talk about impact Indian country here in the state. It's the continuing racism that's happening. It's seeing no reciprocity between the nations and the state, nations and the counties, nations and the cities that we live in, we live by, we live near. You know, because ultimately, Wisconsin Native tribes funnel millions of dollars into the local economy, the cities, the towns that we live in, that we live by. And a lot of the tribal nations are just so frustrated and they want it to be better for the children that are coming up. We want to be sitting at the table. We want to be a part of those conversations. We want to be a part of the solutions, the investigations, you know, the interviews. As all of this work is done, all we're simply asking for is to be at the table and have a voice at the table for meaningful change as it works its way through the process. So you mentioned earlier there were several incidents in which either high schools or universities got in the way of or even prohibited tribal regalia at graduation ceremonies. Do you remember what specific incidents those were, where they happened, and when? There was one recently over by St. Croix, our St. Croix Ojibwe relatives on the western 
outside of the state. And it was a relative, actually, of one of our members that sit on the state tribal relations. And that's what really boosted this conversation last spring is when it really started to heat up. And we started to push through, do more interviews, more investigation. There were also a few other incidences. There was one close to my home here in Gresham. But there are several cases of that exact thing happening all throughout the state, despite Governor Evers and the current state superintendent sending out that letter allowing Native Americans to wear their tribal regalia as they walk across the stage. It's just little simple things, right? Most of the time, our Native students, they just want to put a little bit beads on their graduation hat. Um, That's a huge achievement in the life of our children to be walking that stage, graduating, moving into adulthood. So a lot of them, through our traditional honorings, receive a eagle feather. And so that's a huge accomplishment for them and a lot of our customs. They need to display that so the community and their family members, their community members around them realize they've accomplished something of great magnitude to be honored with that eagle feathers. A lot of the girls, they want to wear their traditional ribbon skirts or applique skirts. They want to put a little bit of applique for our high honor students that walk the stage. They just want to put a little piece of floral or fauna applique on the different color sashes they wear for valedictorian and, you know, all the different honorings and all the different types of sashes they get to wear. You know, they just want to make sure and identify, let people know how proud they are that they're a Native American that's accomplished this. And they're proud to wear their colors. We don't prohibit Christian followers from wearing their crucifix around their necks. You know, we don't prohibit that. So why are we being prohibited from wearing an eagle feather on our hat, from wearing beadwork, or wearing our moccasins? You know, there's no difference there whatsoever between someone wearing a cross around their neck and us wearing an eagle feather on our hat. It's the same ideology. I was definitely curious because, you know, the bill text even states there are protections in place against discrimination based on race, religion, that kind of thing. But it sounds like what you're pointing out is that that discrimination is still happening, but on a selective basis against indigenous people. So you're codifying Uh, it to make sure that specific discrimination is absolutely prohibited. That's what we're hoping to do. You know, it's really sad We try really hard to foster bipartisan relationships, bipartisan support. Anybody that keeps an eye on the politics in the state knows that our reservation is a dot of blue in a sea of red. But we work really, really hard to treat our Republican relatives in a good way, to sit at the table with them, to treat them with respect. And all of these things that are happening recently with the Republicans down in the Capitol, it's just shameful. I mean, it was to the point where we were literally told by our Republican friends, don't get your hopes up. The Republicans are not approving anything. If it's got Native American on it, they're probably not going to pass it. I mean, those were the things we were hearing leading up to the testimony today. It should also be noted that there are a lot of schools in the state of Wisconsin, a lot of them, that are trying really, really hard to abide by Act 31. They've been reaching out, the teachers, the teacher's aide, the school administrators, the school principals. We have been receiving 
so many emails and so many phone calls, not just in my tribe, but in all of our neighboring tribes from schools in Wisconsin that are really making a wholehearted effort to implement Act 31 and to abide by the guidelines. That was actually another assembly bill I was curious about um, that was discussed today um, that would specifically relate to DPI's model standards for teaching tribal history and culture and sovereignty. So what exactly would this bill change? Is it just to streamline communication and standardize these topics? What does the bill text say? It's been modified several times. So the problem we have, specifically me, I was one of the ones that Gary B. saw before me. This bill got moved, started with him. It got to the floor. It was denied. And so they started working on it a second time. So I came in halfway through this bill. So here on our reservation, DPI recognizes our Menominee Language and Culture Commission. It's a commission of nine elders and educators. We do our own certification and our own licensure for the language, culture, and history components to certify our own teachers here. And DPI has not always honored that certification coming from the reservation here. So it was several years back Former legislators of ours fought really hard for DPI, and there was a Ojibwe gentleman that worked right in DPI specifically in their licensing. His name was David O'Connor, and he really helped get this over the line. So it's been several years now where DPI has recognized our licensure process here on the reservation, but for a long time, teachers did not need to come here for the approval here, they could just simply go right to DPI. And they were teachers that were not competent in the language. They were not knowledgeable in the history. So there were issues where people were skirting around the Language and Culture Commission and going directly to DPI to get their DPI licensure to teach in our public school system here. And they had no clue what the hell they were teaching. So it caused a lot of heartburn, a lot of grief, a lot of frustration, and a lot of upset elders when those things were happening. So again, we went back, we pushed even further. If this goes through, all teachers here on the reservation, my reservation and other native reservations that are seeking licensure for language, culture, and history would need to first and foremost go through their parent advisory board or their language board or their elder committee on the reservations and then get that documentation. That documentation would be forwarded on to DPI. At that point, DPI would coincide with the decision and the license would be granted. We don't think DPI should have the right to bestow a lifetime license on anybody that's teaching our language, our history, and our culture. I know for a fact nobody on DPI speaks my language. You know, is that the way the public school system works? As a teacher comes in, you know, they just give them a license and they don't expect them. Nobody expects them to continue their development. Even if they're a really bad math teacher, they just get to stay in that school and keep teaching for 20, 30 years. I don't think so. So those are some of the things. That's a piece we want to continue to fight for. That was part of it today. So you've mentioned that many of these bills have long been discussed in collaboration with Governor Tony Evers, and they simply don't pass. And so are you concerned that will happen again? Have you heard from any Republicans who may have blocked these efforts in the past? 
I haven't heard anything specific. I'm anxiously waiting next to my cell phone, my office phone, and my email. So I'll probably start reaching out to people by later this evening and at least get a judge a feeling for how it went today. But like I mentioned before, I really would be surprised, not only myself, but other nations as well. You know, we were told, don't hold your breath. You know, the Republicans have been turning anything down that's come from Native American communities, tribes, and reservations that have came to the Senate floor. They didn't seem to have a lot of faith that these bills were going to get the time they deserved to be heard and, and to make a good decision on them. So I don't want to keep you too long. I think that covers all of my questions. But I was wondering if there was anything else you'd like to share with our listeners. We always hear, call your governor, call your senator, call your representative. And we spend a lot of time in the surrounding cities, the surrounding towns, the small towns, the big towns, out in the counties. We, we try to do a lot of collaborative work to support initiatives that are going on close to our reservations, close to our homes. And a lot of times hear that saying, well, if you support this, call your senator, call your governor call your representative, call your district rep. I mean, we can't emphasize that enough. If there are some bills coming through that people are very supportive of, if there's issues coming through that people are supportive of, it truly, really does matter. Thank you so much for speaking with me, Joey. All right. You have a nice evening. That was Joey Awanape, a Menominee tribal legislator who, along with his colleagues, is advocating for the passage of a number of bills that would support Wisconsin's indigenous communities. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sean Bull, here with my co-host, Stacy Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. This week on Transparency Talk, WORT's Dylan Brogan and Open Records attorney Tom Kamenek walks us through uh, Wisconsin's open meetings law. Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss has delivered a recent test case that shows when a meeting is public isn't always crystal clear. As always, this conversation is not intended to be specific legal advice, but rather a general discussion of legal issues. It's that time again. We're talking to Tom Kamenick about transparency. It's transparency talk, everyone. (laughs) So, Tom, we're getting back to basics today talking about the open meetings law. But first, I just wanted to, to go over kind of a recent example of when the open meetings law was in the news. So we had Assembly Speaker Robin Voss. Uh, he sought advice from three former Wisconsin Supreme Court justices about possibly impeaching uh, the current justice, Janet Protosiewicz. He wanted some advice about whether that was a good idea or a bad idea or the legal implications. And then, you know, that brought a lawsuit pretty quickly over whether whether this three-judge panel was subject to the open meetings law. So any thoughts about that? Before we get into whether or not it is subject, I think I think we got to go back to the basics a little bit and start a run of what is the open meetings law? What does it do and who does it apply to? Because that's often a very interesting question. So the, the point of the law is to ensure that all government meetings, they're all held open to the public so that public can see the business of government and then they're only allowed to go into closed session in specific 
narrow circumstances. So the meetings that are subject to the law are the meetings of state and local governmental bodies. And the question often in cases is, well, what's a governmental body? What actually counts? And so we know a few things. It has to be a formally constituted group. It can't be just a loose collection of people whose membership is kind of in flux. And it has to act cohesively as a body, not as individual members. And finally, it needs to be created by some kind of governmental action. The statute says it has to be created by the Constitution or a statute or a regulation or a rule or an order. We often get into the question of, well, what counts as a rule or an order? And the attorney general tells us that it's really meant to be a broad concept that includes any formal or informal action that creates this group and gives it a function, gives it a job to do. Well, that's really interesting because while you were running through that, just thinking about the example with these former Supreme Court justices, the assembly speaker kind of brought them together. Is that an official act? Also, like they weren't an existing government body. Uh, it, it seems like they were a little bit informal. So I guess, is this a really gray area example of when the open means law would apply and when it wouldn't? I think you're right that this is a gray area. There are things that indicate that it is a, a governmental body. There are things that kind of weigh against it being a, a governmental body. So if we think of it kind of like a spectrum on, on one end, if the assembly, the whole body or the whole legislature had voted to create the interim panel on impeachment processes and said the job of the panel is to write a legal opinion on impeachment in this situation and said the panel shall consist of three members. That would be a very clear governmental body. On the other hand, on the other end of the spectrum, well, Voss just called up former Justice Prosser and said, hey, what do you think about this? Hang up the phone. Falls, hey, maybe I should ask Rogensack the same thing. Oh, you know, Wilcox too. And just kind of informally polls each one of them, that's definitely not a governmental body. So so what do we have here? Boss did call it a panel. That's a very strong indication that it is a body by itself. It doesn't appear that they acted all that cohesively together, though. We, we know that the individual justices sent individual opinions back to Voss. So that would kind of seem more like a just individuals doing the work themselves. But there was at least one get together of, of these three justices over lunch, I think, from, from what we understand. So does that qualify as them acting together? I don't know. We're going to have to see how the facts come out. Yeah. Food is served. Does that count as a meeting? <laughs> that is not in the, the list of, of factors that courts consider. It usually is pretty clear when uh, the open meetings law applies and when it doesn't. So let's just talk about what does open mean? Yeah, so this applies to to your, your local school board, your local city council, your um, a lot of the state departments that are based on councils or committees of, of more than one member, those all count. Uh, the Public Service Commission has three members. When they meet, they have to meet publicly. So number one, an open meeting has to be reasonably accessible to the public. And Typically, that's an inside a government building that's not locked and the room is large enough to hold the expected crowd. Question that's come up a lot more in the past few years, of course, is uh, virtual meetings or teleconferences. And those are usually okay under the law, so long as the public can attend them somehow. Typically going to be fine, although the attorney general has said that there's 
some situations where if maybe something small is being looked at in detail and you can't capture it well on camera, that might be a situation where you can't do it virtually. Uh, number two for, for what open means is anybody can record it. Anybody who is attending can set up a video camera, hold up their phone and record it, uh, so long as they're not doing it in a way that disrupts the meeting itself. And finally, number three, all open meetings have to be noticed beforehand. And typically that means 24 hours before there has to be public notice explaining uh, the time and location that this meeting is going to happen, what the governmental body is going to do, which is typically an agenda of, of items. It all needs to be provided in enough detail to let the public know what's going on and to make a reasonably informed decision about do I want to attend this based on what's uh, what's listed in the notice or not? When are government bodies allowed to not be public? Yeah, the statute lists the the situations that's allowed. There's about nine of them, but there's you know three or four that come up a lot more than others. And uh, one of them is personnel matters. So if they're discussing an individual employee, either their job performance, potential discipline, potential firing, or potential hiring, they can go into closed session to discuss that. Another one is bargaining or competitive interests. So if they're trying to purchase property for a new fire department, if they know they want to spend less than $600,000 on the land, but they want to start out in making an offer of $500,000, yeah, it's important to keep that bargaining position secret from the other side, or the other side's just going to say, I'll sell it to you, but only for $600,000, right? Third one that comes up most frequently is conferring with legal counsel. This is tied to attorney-client privilege. They generally get to talk to their attorneys in private if it's about litigation. Uh, that's sometimes misunderstood. If they're just getting legal advice about something that's not related to ongoing or potential litigation, that's not supposed to be done in private. So when they're obeying the law, you do see uh, you know, town, town attorneys, city attorneys, school board attorneys giving advice in open session for that reason if it's not about litigation specifically. All right. Well, thank you. Um, be careful out there if you have lunch with more than one justice, I think is the, the takeaway. Make At least tell someone 24 hours in advance. <laughs> so. Tom Kamenick, thank you for talking to us today about the open meetings law. Important. Always a pleasure, Dylan. And remember, if you don't go to these meetings, you won't know. Despite this week's warm weather, it's going to get cold starting this weekend. Nate Weggehout and Pat Hasberg break down what that means and give this week's fishing report on this week's fishy business. All righty, I'm on the line now with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Pat, it's been sort of a nice week, but we have some cold weather coming up here pretty quick here. So before we get into what's happening with that cold weather, over the past week here, how's the fishing been around the Madison area? The fishing has been great. We had a lot of folks coming through the shop over the weekend looking to enjoy the kind of the last bits of uh, good fall weather from what the forecast looks like. And um, yeah, they were getting fish. There's walleye up shallow, pike are plentiful, muskies are biting, and, and the panfish bite's been good. And now with that nice weather, that's all going away. <laughs> it's it's winter's, <laughs> winter's just around the corner now. And we, we have, uh, I think, what is it, starting tomorrow, maybe Saturday, it's supposed to start getting real cold. I'm talking 30s and 40s. So with, with this sort of weather changing, you know, starting to get 
colder here. Uh, what what can we sort of expect for the fish to be doing uh, in as the weather starts to get colder here? Well, one of the main things that we're going to experience is turnover of the local lakes. So you're going to have um, that the warm water that's on the surface from the summertime uh, is going to that temperature starts to drop, and it's going to mix with the cooler water underneath the lake, and that'll stir up a bunch of stuff in the lake. And when turnover happens, uh, the water turns pretty gross and smelly for a couple of days. Uh, but after turnover is finished, that's when the fish really know that it's uh, the clock's ticking as far as winter and, and ice comes. So uh, the action can actually pick up pretty good around town, uh, especially walleyes up shallow, really start to put the feed bag on. Pike and muskies, really, I mean, the, with, with the muskies especially, and now let's start going down the list of everything happening around here, starting off with Lake Mendota. What's happening over there? Well, the walleye bite on Lake Mendota has been great. Uh, of course, the one of the main things uh, that people experience on Mendota is a size issue. The fish have to be 18 inches to keep, the walleyes have to be 18 inches to keep out there. So uh, what you run into is a lot of 17 and a half inch fish, uh, but the numbers are good. Uh, the pike have been biting really well. Panfish, especially nice bluegills, have been being found out on mid-lake humps. Uh, but those fish are also starting to move in shallow. Yeah, the smallmouth bass bite has also been really good on weed lines. I cannot tell you how many fish that I have caught that are about half an inch too small in order to keep. I think I, I feel like most fish they happen they know I don't know how, but they know what the size limit is, and they they stay below that. Uh, let's move over now to Lake Monona. What's happening over there? Well, uh, like I mentioned earlier, the musky bite has been uh, really picking up, and it's only going to get better as we move into this uh, post-turnover cycle. Uh, but I guess the biggest news on Monona has been the uh, bluegill and crappie bite. So a lot of those fish that were suspended out deep have moved in shallow, and especially in the areas around the Monona Terrace, the bluegill bite during the day has been good, and the crappie bite in the evening has also been great. Uh, but uh, from what I hear, there are a ton of bluegills and, and a few crappies that have moved into Monona Bay. So Brittingham Park and the, and the train tracks, they call that the triangles down there. Uh, that's all been um, very productive for panfish lately. And let's move over to Lake Wingro. What's happening over there? I know there's some muskies in there. That's right. I do hear about the occasional muskie coming out of there and uh, also a nice largemouth bass uh, population in there. Of course, the lake itself has a lot of tiny bluegills and panfish, some small perch in there, too. Uh, but I have heard about a decent bite uh, coming out of the spillway there uh, below at the at where the lake uh, comes out there by the hospital down there. It's been a, a good uh, bluegill bite down there, too. Now let's move over to Wabisa and those lakes over there. What's been happening over there? Well, Wabisa also has a great muskie population, so that uh, action's been improving. I haven't heard a lot out of the bass folks down there lately, but there again, uh, the bluegills that were suspended out deep have moved in shallow, so there's been a good panfish bite on weed lines all around the lake, and, and if you can find shallow humps, uh, it seems like the the bluegills have been concentrating in those areas, too. And now I, we have to touch on it. Any, have you heard anything coming out of Kaganza? Is anything happening over there that's making its way up to you? I haven't, other than uh, w- with the temperatures that were fall- falling two weeks ago, the, it sounded like uh, Lake Kiganza actually has turned over already, uh, but the turnover on the other lakes has kind of stalled with this warmer week we've had this week. But I heard that Kiganza has turned over, and I heard that the water down there has cleared up. I haven't heard much in the way of fish reports, uh, which unfortunately is kind of par for the course down there. But, uh, you know, it's been uh, if I was going to be fishing down there, I'd look at weed lines for bluegills and 
uh, fish the state park area uh, for walleyes. Usually some good walleye action over there. And now trout season, obviously done, so we won't be touching on that for a little bit here. I know there will be some catch and release here, but uh, I want to move over to some of the other rivers, the Rock River, Wisconsin, Yahara River. What have you been hearing out of there? Well, the Wisconsin River, after being low all summer, we've had uh, some uh, nice rains up north and then some rain here locally the last few days that have brought the levels up. It also that puts the fish in a better mood. We've had fish uh, stacking up at some of the uh, dams, so Prairie du Sac, Wisconsin Dells, Castle Rock, Petenwell dams have been uh, seeing an influx of walleye and sauger coming in there, uh, but also uh, larger predator fish like pike and muskie coming through there. So uh, that action's picking up. Uh, the only thing about higher water is that uh, when, when the fi- when the water's low, the fish are easy to, easier to find because they're in the deeper water. But now that there's deeper water pretty much everywhere, the fish can be a little harder to find. That's why I think the dams uh, become more of a, a magnet for anglers this time of year. Uh, one other thing that's worth mentioning is that the salmon are starting to push up the tributaries over on the east coast of Wisconsin. So you got the Milwaukee River, Menominee River, Root River, Sauk Creek in Port uh, Washington and everywhere all the way up and down the East Coast as uh, the king salmon are pushing up into the rivers right now to do their spawning. And it's a really special time of year where you can stand there right on the bank and see some very impressive fish swimming by, you know, 20, 25 pounds. I was out there with my son this last weekend and we got into a few nice fish. I caught one that was at least 20 pounds. He got a couple that were 15. So it's a great time and uh, something that uh, is, you know, only happens for a couple of weeks here in the fall and is definitely worth getting over there to check out. And we are running up against the clock here, Pat. So before we go, any final fishing advice as the weather turns a little bit colder? Well, yeah, just get out there and enjoy it while, while it uh, lasts. And, you know, we're not far away from ice. And, you know, some of us don't feel good about that, but others are very excited about it. So I guess it all depends on your perspective. But get out there and enjoy the nice weather while you can. I always get out and do at least a little bit of ice fishing every year. Well, Pat, thank you again for talking with me this week. Remember, you can hear an updated fishing report anytime that you want. One simple, easy-to-remember number, 608-BIG-FISH. Pat, thanks again for talking, and good luck out there. Always a pleasure, Nate. Take care. It's 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Forward Madison crashed out of the first round of the USL League One playoffs this past Saturday in Windsor, Colorado. Flamingo fans who made the trip to the Rockies were treated with a towering headed goal by striker Christian Chaney, but it was not enough to move on to the next round, and the fans now face a long winter away from Bree Stevens Field. More now from Forward Focus. Hello again to everyone listening to WORT online and at 89.9 FM on your radio dial. Welcome to another edition of Forward Focus, a segment devoted to any and all things Forward Madison FC, Wisconsin's only fully professional soccer team. I'm one of your hosts, Grant Peters, assistant editor for FMFC-themed publication New Dog Mazine. 
Joining me as always is the editor of NDZ and the producer of Forward Focus, Andrew Schmidt. In our last segment, FMFC were preparing for their final match of the regular season on October 14th, a battle against Union Omaha at the friendly confines of Bree Stevens Field. The Flamingos needed to win or have South Georgia Tormenta lose or draw for FMFC to secure a spot the following weekend in the USL1 playoffs. Playing the league leaders, FMFC tried to start the scoring off early, but struggled to get anything going offensively in the first half. That would continue into the second half as well, as FMFC only managed two shots on target for the entire match. Union Omaha would eventually take advantage of the Flamingos' offensive struggles, and in the 64th minute, Omaha's Steven Dos Santos banged one in off the post to give his squad a 1-0 lead. It would be a nervous final half hour for Ford Madison fans, as many were relegated to watching phone screens as Tormenta remained tied with the Charlotte Independents. Although Ford Madison would be unable to score and would lose the match against Omaha, Ford Madison fans were still in a jubilant mood as Charlotte would hold on for a draw to give FMFC their first USL1 playoff berth since the club's inaugural season in 2019. This meant a trip back to the Rocky Mountains to face the high-scoring Northern Colorado Hailstorm. Last weekend, Ford Madison traveled to Fort Collins, Colorado to take on the Hailstorm with a chance to do something that they had not done all season and win a match against Northern Colorado and their dangerous attack. Winning the match would not only move the Flamingos one step closer to a championship, but it would also set up a rematch against the number one seeded Union Omaha. Ford Madison tried to make inroads early against a stout Colorado defense and had numerous good looks in the first half. Right before the stroke of the halftime whistle, however, an airborne tussle on a cross to the top of the box would leave the FMFC goalie Baron Shipman out of position, and the ball fell onto the foot of USL1 Golden Boot winner Trevor Armand, who slotted it home to give Noko a 1-0 lead. FMFC would fight back, however, in the second half, as in the 57th minute, Christian Cheney would outmuscle the defender and head home the tying goal setting the dozens of forward Madison fans that made the trek to Fort Collins into a beer-soaked frenzy. Their elation would be short-lived, however, as the hailstorm would strike again in the 64th minute, this time off an incredible corner kick from Arthur Rogers, whose Olympico strike would give Northern Colorado a 2-1 lead. From there, with FMFC having to attack and opening themselves up defensively, the Hailstorm would add two more goals from Amman to finish off Ford Madison by a score of 4-1 to and end the 2023 campaign. While many Madison fans will be understandably disappointed after the loss in Windsor, there were bright points in the match, including a positive performance for Mauro Sacchero and a return scoring for Kristen Cheney, who hadn't tallied since August 19th in that 4-4 battle away to Fresno. Hear more now from forward fan Oleg Timokhin on how the Flamingos fared versus the Hailstorm. The forwards playoff game against the Hailstorm was the prime example of a game that does not match the final score. 
Uh, because if you're just a bystander looking at the score, you're probably thinking, well, there was just a big blowout, 4-1, how can that happen? But if you watch the game, I think everybody would say that forward played a really good game. They did not look like uh, the underdogs, and, and even more, they were able to dominate against the opponent for most of the first half and some of the second half. Our defense looked really good, such as our attack, and overall, I would say that the play was very interesting to look at. I was really happy to see that Sichero finally got uh, a good role on the field. He doesn't seem to be out of place. He was engaged in mostly every play. He had really good passes. I would say his passes were one of the sharpest ones on the field. Where they were really good forward passes, not just back or sideways. I'm very happy that Cheney scored a goal. Overall, I would say we had a really good season. I mean, we made it to playoffs the first time since our first season. So hooray, there we go. Um, I'm hoping that the majority of the players will stay for next season and we can build a team around them. Um, the change that I want to see is working on the ball pressure. It seemed to be a systemic issue during this season when we were just sporadically pressuring the opponent. It didn't seem like it was a specific plan necessarily, but it was, like I said, very sporadic. And I guess looking from the sideline, it was hard to understand what was the idea behind it. Another change that I would love to see is us working on long shots. I know that this is the art that's dying down in soccer, but um, listening to other analytics um, who talk about it, they say that right now it's the best time to bring it back because uh, the teams are defending very low. That means whenever the attacking team wins the second ball after the cross or the corner, there is a lot of space and a lot of time to get the ball on your right foot and being able to look at the goal and have a good long shot. And so I feel like um, that's something that can be effective again. Good job to our team, to everybody, the coaching staff and other people involved in the club. Go forward. The Flamingos finished the 2023 season with a record of 11 wins, 10 draws and 11 losses. Mentioned earlier, they were able to finish the season with a trip to the USL1 playoffs, their first since the club's inaugural season back in 2019. They now face a long offseason ahead of them before they start their continued quest for a USL1 championship in 2024. Andrew and I will continue to be here throughout the offseason, telling the stories about Ford Madison FC that have helped make it the much-talked-about and deeply-loved club that it is today. For WORT, this has been Ford Focus. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Russ Mackey was your headline writer. Your reporter tonight was Sarah Gabler. Special thanks to feature contributors Dylan Brogan, Tom Kamenek, Nate Weggehout, and Pat Hasberg, and the Forward Focus crew. Nicole Alley engineered the show, Faye Parks produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sean Bull. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. 
you know, you don't need to uh, worry about missing a single cool interview or story on WORT's local news when you subscribe to it as a podcast. Catch it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you subscribe. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening, and good night.